Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. This is a special edition at KubeCon. Today is my host, Dan, from uh, Cilium, right? Well, the company is Isovalent. Isovalent. Most people know us about, because yeah. of EBPF right. and Cilium. So. You know, that's funny because like, when, I, when I heard that, yeah, I, and, and I know Cilium, so when I heard Isovalent, I'm like, who are the, you know, I don't know who that is. But, the, but then, then, you know, then, then I put it together. You know, I'm a little bit smart. Not that smart, but I'm a little bit smart. So I put it together <laughs> and I figured well, out who Well, don't was. worry. You're not the only one. And at the end of the day, you know, I think what matters most is that people are excited about Cilium. Uh, I'm excited you know? about it. And lots of people are excited about EVPF and Cilium and they'll naturally find isovalent uh, because of that. Is yeah, case. no. And, that, and that's, well, first of all, I'm bad with names, period. So, you know, it just, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just, that's just me. Um, but yeah, I mean, so one of the things, and, and people who are watching this whole series will see, at the end, I keep asking people, like, what's exciting? What are you guys doing? You know, and, and probably people are tired of me saying it for after everything, but EBPF keeps coming up. Why, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, EBPF is, uh, you know, simply put, the most exciting thing to happen in Linux in the last 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, and, you, I know, agree. I, you know, when we started the company, we were, you know, started with the fundamental thesis that EBPF was going to change everything. Not just about networking, but about security and observability. So I always joke with people, like, when we decided to try to figure out what we were going to focus on first with Cilium, we really weren't sure, because there were so many things that eBPF could disrupt. Um, we kind of started out with the focus on networking, because mm -hmm. that's kind of just the foundational fabric that ties everything together. But then, you know, eBPF gives you just such richer observability and control, mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that just naturally are... You know, our customers and users were saying, well, could you do this? Could you do this? And the amazing thing about eBPF is the answer is almost always yes. <laughs> that's you can that's extend, a great answer. Yeah, exactly. You can extend <laughs> the behavior of the Linux kernel to, like, really natively understand things like Kubernetes and API calls. And really just make it a much more natural fit for these modern workloads that we run. So tell me, you know, and I ask a lot of people this, tell me the origin story of, like, how did this all come about? eBPF, you're saying? Yeah, or, or, or what, like, Cilium and, and oh, all sure, kinds of sure. things. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think the funny thing is eBPF is a core technology that's Absolutely. existed in Linux forever. Yeah, maybe take, take two seconds mm -hmm. just to describe it for, you know, for everybody. Yeah, eBPF, which BPF used to stand for Berkeley Packet Filter, but yes. the proper people tell you you don't say that anymore. It's just eBPF and CBPF, which is, or C, CBPF, which is the old classic one. But anyway, it really started as when you'd run TCP dump yeah. and you'd specify filters. Yeah. Those filters had to run in the kernel to be very efficient, right? And so it was basically that first point in the kernel that you wanted to add extensibility. Mm -hmm. And eBPF is basically the expansion of that framework to allow you to hook these eBPF programs anywhere in the kernel. Yeah. And it's really just opened up a massively larger set of, of use cases. But what's so unique about eBPF is that you can run it safely in the kernel. So compared to a kernel module which might crash your kernel or access data that it shouldn't, eBPF goes through a verifier to make sure um, that it you know, won't crash or hurt your kernel, and yet it runs with the full performance of, of code in the kernel. So it, it kind of comes down to, you know, in the old days, you would have had to imagine if you wanted something new in your Linux kernel, someone would write it upstream, it would get merged in, and then three years later, you'd have the functionality. Yeah. Right, just a horrible iteration cycle. So eBPF lets you kind of safely but dynamically add intelligence to any of the mainstream Linux distros. Right, so... Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, and and safety in your kernel is is, is a good thing for anybody that doesn't know that. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> so um, yeah, and so where did where did uh, Cilium kind of spin out of that? Yeah, yeah, and so it's funny. I mean, actually, I know my co-founder Thomas Graff from the Open vSwitch project. So I was one of the yeah. the first folks at NYSERA who built Open vSwitch, drove a lot of that software to find 
networking movement that was bought by VMware, became VMware NSX. But you know, if you look at that first wave of kind of networking moving from hardware to software, it was really kind of like the first wave of compute was replicating the physical machines in virtual space. That's what VMware did, right? The first wave of software-defined networking was kind of replicating the traditional networking in software. And, you know, but it still cared about IPs and ports, and you had L2 segments and yeah. routers, and it was just kind of creating software-defined yeah. copies of what we used to have. And I think, um, you know, both Thomas and I, you know, really had the vision of, hey, once networking's in software, you can be so much closer to the application. You can understand so much more of that context. And as people are building more and more complicated things, you know, NAP doesn't just live on one server anymore. It's spread across many servers and connected by API calls. You know, having so much more context, understanding that it's this service talking to this service and making this API call, right, that was really ultimately kind of the vision of, of where we thought networking and security and, and network observability needed to go. And then we kind of found eBPF as this technology that kind of unlock that from a technical perspective. And actually, interestingly enough, Thomas and I independently discovered eBPF. He had started the Cilium project. Um, we had met a long time back, and I was kind of suddenly got really excited about eBPF. It was about you know, six or seven years ago now. And, and basically, I was like searching around. I found the Cilium project. I'm like, oh, man. Someone, someone else already started what I want to build. And literally, because you know, the magic of open source, it's GitHub. I click on the con contributors tab, yep. and it's Thomas. And I'm like, reached out to him. And so this, this stuff is awesome. You're ahead of the, you're ahead of the game. So let's, let's work on this together. That's awesome. And, and that really shows the power of community. I think one of the other core themes that we're, we're seeing you know, across the board is, is this, this great great thing that if you're passionate enough about something and and you want to do it you can do anything you want in this ecosystem because people are really extremely friendly and as long as you have the you know the will and and the know-how to do it then 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 people are very accepting too mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's a it's touching on an interesting point which i think is the the distinction between open source and community, right? Yeah. Just being open source doesn't mean you have a successful community. Absolutely not. And, you know, and, I, and I think you know, in the, a lot of the, this is what a lot of you know, larger vendors often I think don't understand, which they feel like, I'm open sourcing this. This is my gift. Uh, that's Every, that's everyone it. else should be grateful and they'll you know, take it and run with it and they'll take off. Well, right? I shall be grateful. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, I think you know, open sourcing your code is necessary but in no way sufficient to yes. building a successful community. <laughs> Right? And I think that's really what we focused on with eBPF and Cilium and kind of understanding that, that you know, hey, the more people who are using eBPF, right, we organized the eBPF Summit, which highlights eBPF work from everyone. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, Cilium's being adopted by Google and Amazon and lots of other folks, right? You know, which is amazing. Yeah, right. And there's, there's, just, there's value in, in kind of becoming the standard and this kind of notion that, hey, growing the community is going to benefit all of us. Yeah, and that's, and that's the key there because you're growing it with that's the key mm -hmm. word there, with the community. Mm -hmm. So you're starting with the community, you're growing it with the community, you're expanding, you're getting the ideas from the community, and at the end, it's, it's all that contribution that goes into that and all that collaboration that makes it very successful. Yeah, and I, and I think, honestly, the most important aspect of community is you have to realize that other people, you're giving, like, other people are going to be successful. You have to want other people to be successful you, with you it in a way that do. even if it doesn't, you know, accrue to you as a, as a company. Yeah, right? absolutely. Because that's really ultimately, like, very important actually building a successful community. Yeah, in open yeah, source. yeah, and, and, and it's true. A lot of large companies don't understand that, you know, because what they do is they say, you know what, I'm going to look at, let, you know, these guys look very successful. Um, well, what's, what's the product that made them successful? Or what's the, you know, or, or how do you build that community? Or how do you do that? And it's just, 
it's not the it's not the right approach because they're taking it from like almost like a legacy and trying mm-hmm. to transform it into something that is not really a developer led ecosystem or a developer mindset or, or, or something like that. So it's 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 really interesting to see that dynamic. Yeah, yeah, but definitely open sourcing the code is not enough as we've seen many times these days. So Yeah, I totally agree. What other um what well first of all let, let, let me let me continue. Let's 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 talk about um uh, Cilium a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of describe, you know, what the core of it is. What what is it intended to do? Why are people interested in it? You mm-hmm. know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I think, you know, again kind of the thing to compare Cilium against is probably, you know, like traditional IP tables, firewalls, or things like that, right? Yeah. Where you're kind of using the static functionality built into the Linux kernel. It was designed for, you know, humans typing a couple firewall lines at a command line yeah. and applying them manually. <laughs> you know, it hasn't changed in 20 years. Yep. Um, et cetera. So, you know, there's obvious scale and performance benefits um, to, to doing this stuff in eBPF, but I actually think the real secret sauce of eBPF is its ability to pull in additional context yeah. and understand more than just, for example, the IP and the port and the packet. You can understand the service identity. You can understand the API call. You can even understand the process that made the API call, right? And, you know, both from an observability perspective and from a you know, security enforcement perspective, that additional context is really what's very valuable. And so I think what, what really kind of makes people, makes Cilium jump out to people are things like our Hubble observability capabilities, right? Which like observability and just who's talking to who, you know, what's working, what's not working. Your Kubernetes cluster is just a, a black box in there, right? Yeah. IP addresses are meaningless, workloads are coming and going. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, people still have this, you know, these workloads are still important when, when service A can't talk to service B to figure out why, right? And you can't simply, you know, ping your Kubernetes team and have them SSH into a node every time. You need real abstractions uh, for observability. And so I think that to some degree I think is a really missing piece of, of kind of um, the overall Kubernetes ecosystem and saying, hey, as, as everything becomes API calls on a network, how do I get rich observability into that? Um, so observability, I think, often comes first, and then security as as a, as a second thing after that, right? Which is once you know what's talking to each other, oh boy, either those things shouldn't be talking to each other, or you want to have zero trust networking policies that limit communication to just those communications that are supposed to happen. Yeah, it's funny because I, you know somebody else mentioned this before, but I, I just had a Stack Overflow mm-hmm. podcast that I did that talks about how observability is first, and then you need to you know you need to understand what you have first yeah. before you can secure it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just common sense. Well, I really. think it's always been the case, but I think it's especially true yeah. in this much more complicated world where Absolutely. apps are broken into many pieces, API calls are happening here and there. You know, you put a firewall policy in based on what people think their app is doing, <laughs> you're going to be in big trouble, right? Like, there's always what the developers think their app does, and then there's the reality of, of the connections that, oh, you're, oh, yeah, you're right, I do have a backup job that does that every, you know, every week or something like that. And not to mention that, you know, as developers, we're, I always say this, we're lazy in a good way. So what that means is that we're going to figure out how to create that app as easy as possible. And the way that we do that is, is that we uh, just pull down the API that has that functionality, not knowing what it's really doing or mm-hmm. anything like that, just trusting yeah. That this API that we're going to use is going to mm-hmm. do the thing that we want, mm-hmm. you know. So, so, um, and and the same thing happens in containers too, where you're you, you run a Helm chart or you run, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you're trusting mm-hmm. that that's doing what you think it's doing. So, you really want ways to verify and observe too before you mm-hmm. and, and secure. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think as you know, as people build more and more complex apps. Yeah, they're pulling in libraries, this and that, right? You there's there's, there's what you think your library is doing, and that's yeah. what it potentially does do, right? And and yeah, I th I think like the really important thing about, and I think why starting with observability from a security perspective makes a lot of sense, is that the core problem with security is always friction, yeah. right? It's okay. Well, great, I can lock this down, but then I potentially break apps and I reduce the reliability or I don't hit. So. The fact that eBPF gives such efficient observability. Yeah, that's the key. Right, there's no need for sidecars, there's no added latency or overhead, et cetera, right? You're able to just turn on kind of this always on security observability. Yeah. Um, in a way that, you know, isn't bothering your application developers or telling them to insert this agent in there or anything like that. And that's always, I think, you know, that, that fundamental step of, you may not have been able to stop the breach, but at least you know you know it happened. You can confirm it happened. You can understand what what data was accessed, and then of course you know based on that observability data, you can come in and say, hey, where do I want to start actually enforcing policies? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 going back to EBBF, I mean, it's been around for a little while. It's just that I think the libraries and the and the, and the support around it has gotten a lot better in the, in recent years. Well, I think there's a couple things. I think there's, you know, you needed a relatively modern, you know. Five years ago, I used to say you need a modern Linux kernel for eBPF. Now you just need not something that's ancient. Yeah. <laughs> so I, th I think part of it is just you know our kernels with with good eBPF support have now become you know essentially ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, but it's also yeah. I mean I think eBPF is is a is a you know you're literally writing kernel code, yeah. and so the technology itself is not something that's immediately accessible to someone running a business. It actually takes you know projects like Cilium that ultimately, you know, we don't tell Cilium users, write your eBPF code here, <laughs> right? We give Cilium users high-level CRDs to say, hey, yeah. let's, you know, service A should be able to talk to service B, but not anything else. Or, you know, give me the HTTP metrics between service A and service B. You know, so th that translation between high-level kind of human understandable intent, <laughs> right, and extremely low-level eBPF code, it kind of needs that layer. And I think that's, what, that's effectively what Cilium is. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. I mean, I, I you know, I, I I'm a techie, so I get really excited about new technology and and kind of where this stuff is going. And you know, all these jumps that you see in you know, we had sidecars, and then we had you know, we were we were grabbing stuff from that, and then going to you know something like this. It's it's just amazing to me. You know. Yeah, so, yeah. And you you mentioned sidecars, and I actually think there's an interesting kind of statement to be made here, which is, if you assume the kernel is static. Yeah. The best you can do is is a, is, a, is like a sidecar proxy, yeah. right? Because you can't change the kernel, so you have to take everything into the kernel and then take it out and then put it back in again, right? Which is, uh, which is high which latency. Is, yeah, it's yeah. very high latency, extra overhead of running the proxy and the CPU to get it there. It's just kind of a mess, but it's kind of the best you can do yeah. if you assume you can't change the kernel. The beauty of eBPF is that you can start saying, well, what if I would actually want to build that sidecar functionality into the kernel, right? Um, where it naturally can kind of fit and not um, not kind of force these uh, you know <laughs> terrible hairpin things in and out of the kernel. It's simpler. Um, it's more efficient. It's actually more secure as well, right? Because you cannot send network traffic. You know, you can potentially bypass a proxy. You cannot send network traffic without going through the kernel, right? You're just kind of at a very strong point um, from a security position. That is, uh, yeah. That's 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 a great point. Is that you know the the kernel. You know, everything has to go through there. So it's it's just you know it makes so much sense that that's kind of the gatekeeper and 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 the you know all the information needs to come. Yeah, I mean, if you think about you know we always tell our tell our customers that Linux is the new like universal 
cloud native runtime. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Whether you're and, and you know, we see more and more customers are saying, listen, you know, I'm on on-prem on VMware now, but I'm gonna be on this cloud provider next, or I'm on this cloud provider, but I'm also you know, like two years ago I feel like that was a that was a future thing. Now it's actually very common. We almost all of our customers have multi-cloud environments. They're not necessarily like bridged and connected, but they're leveraging infrastructure from multiple of multiple different types of underlying infrastructure. And yet they don't want to have to secure their Kubernetes workloads in a different way, yeah. <laughs> right? Or they don't want the observability data they get to be different, right, when they're on Azure versus AWS. Yeah. And so Linux is essentially that universal cloud native runtime. And Cilium is injecting all of the additional intelligence in there to give people the observability and the security and the kind of the connectivity abstractions they need. Yeah, and that makes total sense. And, and, and you see that because the fact is that, you know, everybody was gung-ho. They're like, yeah, we're going to go to the cloud. This is going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all just going to go to the cloud. We don't need data centers anymore. And then, you know, what's funny is that, you know, all the CIOs said, said we're going to be cloud first. We're going to be cloud first. But what most companies did was said, hey, we're going to take our legacy apps here and we're going to put them up here. Mm -hmm. And what that is, it's called a second data center. That's not a very expensive I was, I was going to joke, but what, what most CIOs did was just started calling their data centers clouds. <laughs> yes, we moved to the yes, cloud by renaming it. it. We, we just moved to the cloud. So, so yeah, I mean, so, so obviously, if you're not going to, you know, take advantage of some of the functionality of the clouds, that becomes really expensive really quick. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of the skill sets had to skill up for a lot of these companies, and they didn't have the right skill sets at the time, so they just tried to put stuff out there. And so everybody was like, wait a minute, I'm getting really, really high bills here. This mm -hmm. is, you know, this is not sustainable. So then you start seeing people say, okay, well, what pieces really need to be in the cloud? Mm -hmm. Let's put those there and let's move some of the other pieces back. And that's the world we live in now. Mm -hmm. That's the world that we're going to be in for a long time, I think. I don't think that, Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think we, you know, this isn't particularly related to our business, but yeah. I do think that notion of the data center is dead is no longer... Yes. You hear a lot less of that, right? Yeah. You hear a lot more of like, my stuff's going to be in many different places, yeah. right? And like, it's going to depend on data governance things and cost things and yeah. all the, you know, and I think that's kind of the magic, I think, of what Kubernetes is offering. Absolutely. It's just like, give me a sane way to think about how I can expose many different types of yeah. underlying infrastructure to my application teams. And, you know, from our side, you know, Kubernetes does a great job of that in terms of how you deploy and lifecycle the applications. But as we mentioned, kind of the observability and security components, right, also need to have that same kind of cloud independent property. Yeah, right? absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, Kubernetes is like this core thing, but there's so much that can be done around it that's, that's needed. And what you guys are doing is one piece of that. But there's, you know, um, there's, there's just so much that, that still needs to be done. Yeah. And there's, it's like you see a lot of shift left. You see a lot of, Yeah, there's you know, a ton of exciting stuff going there's on. There's so much so. stuff going on right now. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday, um, at, you know, largest cloud provider, and I said, people always love to think that infrastructure is dead, or like, you know, yeah, the yeah. thing they did was the last interesting thing in infrastructure. <laughs> it's like, no, as long as there's, um, you know, as long as there's complexity, <laughs> you know, there will be people trying to find better abstractions, better ways to give observability into that yeah. complexity, right? Yeah. And I think ultimately, um, you know, the search for the, the better and better um, kind of balance between having simplicity, but also having control, right? Because, yeah. you know, you could go back to Google App Engine 10 plus years ago, and that was simple, yeah, right? Absolutely. But what was the problem, right? Well, it doesn't give enterprises the control and the visibility and all of that that they need. Yeah. And so I kind of think of the Kubernetes ecosystem at some level as giving people kind of this mechanism where they can kind of search for that right balance, 
the Kubernetes itself, at least for most of our customers, isn't the complete offering to the application team. Yeah. Kubernetes is just that bottom 80% yeah. that is generic, so then they can really focus on that top 20% that is exactly the top PaaS layer that their business needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that companies are trying to find the right balance between, you know, like, like giving that observability, giving, that, uh, giving them that security, giving them all these features, but still offering multiple ways to consume it. So, you know, you could still have those graphical interfaces, but then in the Kubernetes way, you might want to use operators, you might want to use YAML, you might want to use different things. So different, different people and different organizations have different needs. And I think you kind of have to write for both of them now. You kind of have to write, you know, for the, for the IT ops and the dev ops and, and all these different teams because they have different needs. Yeah, I mean, definitely different. You know, you've got the platform team who spends all day, yeah. every day, thinking about Kubernetes and what a cluster IP is, yeah. and how that's getting mapped to a pod IP. And then, you know, you've got an application developer who's just trying to figure out, hey, can service A not talk to service B because of this security policy, right? And those are different levels of sophistication. Yeah. One's not better than the other. No, it's right? just different. Different just different, and you definitely, that kind of simplified, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do you kind of extract the right, just the right information to then surface to the application developer teams? Yeah. So that they're getting that right signal of, you know, hey, did the, did the latency between these services spike, right? Or was it, you know, you know even just, you know, hey, what, what downstream dependency seems to now be throwing, you know, HTTP errors that wasn't before? Maybe that explains my problem, right? Yeah. But you need, to, you need to have abstracted that information from the underlying Kubernetes infrastructure of which they, you know, often know nothing about, right? They're yeah. just deploying their app. They want to understand why, why their app isn't talking to this other API <laughs> properly. Yeah, and I, and I think simplicity or simplification is a big topic right now around the Kubernetes ecosystem because people mm -hmm. want to simplify. It's very daunting. Mm -hmm. And I've mentioned this so many times in the past few interviews that I've done, but you know, there's just so much out there. There's so many different solutions. And for somebody coming into it, it's just too daunting. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be that, that simplification. I think there's a yearning for kind of that people that need that simplification, but also give you some of that advanced feature set. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think it's up to, up to most businesses to decide how much of that sophistication they want to expose to their yeah. app. Right? You know, listen, there's, there's customers we have that literally the interface to the application team is upload your jar file, yeah. and it goes out and gets deployed. Yep. Right? You know, that's built on top of Kubernetes, but that doesn't mean they're exposing it. pod yeah. manifests yeah, yeah, yeah. and all no. this stuff to their users, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, you know I, I do think that ultimately, like, Kubernetes is the foundation. Yeah. Right, but if you're just exposing raw Kubernetes to your application developer, right? In some cases, maybe again, I don't, I don't, you know, everyone has their business, right? Yeah. They know their consumers best. Maybe their consumers do really need all of those knobs, but I certainly will argue not every app team needs all of those knobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we are just about to wrap up, but what I do ask everybody here is, you know, you've been here a few days. You've seen a lot of things. You kind of came into this. What's exciting to you? What are you excited about? You know, is there some <laughs> new exciting tech? Is there something you've seen? Is it just seeing people? What is it? Yeah. I, so, I mean, KubeCon LA was definitely the seeing people because there was no, there were no actual end users there. <laughs> but like, it was seeing, uh, seeing other vendors and seeing, yeah. seeing community members. This one has just been, it's been incredible to see since KubeCon San Diego. Um, you know, for us. We don't, you know, we're not, hey, we're learn how to deploy Kubernetes. We actually are kind of fairly late in the life cycle, yeah. right? You know, you have to figure out how to do Kubernetes and get apps onto there. Then you start to figure out how you troubleshoot connectivity problems with them or how you apply firewall policies. So I think what's been shocking to me here, shocking and exciting, right, is really um, the degree to which mainstream Kubernetes users have now moved to the point 
that that those are their critical problems. And I think you know, vast numbers of them are kind of identifying eBPF, of course, as the key differentiating technology in that space. And Cilium, you know, as a CNCF project and something that's being adopted by all the cloud providers as kind of a really strategic technology. So. The, the honest answer is I haven't had a chance to leave our booth all. I'm not even <laughs> a kidding. A lot of people have said that so far. So, so um, you know, I think that's, that's got to be my answer. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> all right.